Section 67 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Berta von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 16, Part 2. In May we betook ourselves to Paris to visit the exhibition. I had not yet seen the world's capital, and was quite dazzled by its splendor and its life. At that time especially the empire was standing at its highest pitch of splendor, and all the crowned heads of Europe had collected there, and at that time above all others, Paris presented a picture of splendor the most joyful, and the most secure of peace. The city appeared to me at that time not like the capital of a single country, but like the capital of internationality, that city which three years afterwards was to be bombarded by its eastern neighbour. All the nations of the earth had assembled in the great palace in the Champ de Mars, for the peaceful, nay profitable, because productive, not destructive, strife of business competition. Riches, works of art, marvels of manufactory were brought together here, so that it must have excited pride in every beholder to have lived in a time so progressive and so full of promise of further progress, and along with this pride must naturally have arisen the purpose never more to hamper the march that development of civilization which was spreading enjoyment all round by the brutal rage of destruction. All these kings, princes, and diplomatists who were assembled here as guests of the emperor and empress could not surely be thinking, amidst all the civilities that were interchanged, the courtesies and the good wishes of exchanging next time shots with their hosts or one another. No, I breathed again. This really splendid exhibition fate seemed to me the pledge that now an era of long, long years of peace had begun. At most, against an incursion of Tartar hordes or something of that sort, these civilized people might draw the sword. But against each other, we were never more to see that it was hoped. What strengthened me in this opinion was a communication that reached me from a well-informed, trustworthy source about a favorite plan of the emperor for a general disarmament. Yes, Napoleon III was strong on that point. I have it from the mouth of his nearest relations and most trusted friends, and on the next convenient opportunity he was going to communicate to all the European governments a proposal for reducing their military establishments to a minimum. That was good to hear. It was, at any rate, a more reasonable idea than that of a general increase of forces. In this way, the well-known demand of Kant would be granted, which is thus formulated in paragraph 3 of the preliminary article to an everlasting peace. Quote, Standing armies, miles perpetuus, are in time to cease absolutely. They are a constant menace of war to other states. In consequence of the readiness to appear always prepared for war, they provoke them to overpass each other in the mass of preparations, which know no limit, O prophetic glance of wisdom, and inasmuch as the costs of maintaining peace become at last more burdensome than a short war, they are themselves causes of offensive war in order to get rid of this burden. Unquote. What government could decline a proposition such as that which France was meditating without unmasking its lust of conquest? What nation would not revolt against such a refusal? The plan must succeed. Frederick did not share my confidence. In the first place, he said, I doubt whether Napoleon will make the proposal. The pressure of the war party will hinder him. 
As a general rule, the occupants of thrones are prevented by those who surround them from the exercise of those great efforts of individual will which fall quite outside of the usual pattern. In the second place, one cannot give to a living being the command to cease to exist in this sort of way. It straightway sets itself on its defense. Of what living being are you speaking? Of the army. That is an organism, and as such has powers of life development and of self-maintenance. At the present time this organism is just in its prime, and as you see, for the system of universal defense will surely be introduced into other countries, is just on the point of being powerfully extended. And yet you want to fight against it? Yes, but not by stepping up to it and saying, Die, thou monster, for the organism in question would hardly do me the kindness to stretch itself dead at my feet on that summons, but I am fighting against it in appearing on behalf of another living form, which is still only in its fragile bud, but which, as it gains in power and extent, will crush the other out. It is your fault to begin with, Marta, that I talk in these scientific metaphors. It was you who first led me to study the works of the modern students of nature. From this, there has arisen in me the view that the phenomena of social life also cannot be understood in their origin or foreseen in their future course till one conceives of them as existing under the influence of eternal laws. Of this most politicians and people in positions of high dignity have no notion, not the faintest, the worthy soldier certainly not. A few years ago it had not entered my head either. We were living in the Grand Hotel on the Boulevard des Capucines. It was occupied chiefly by English people and Americans. We met few of our own people. The Austrians are not fond of travel. Besides, we sought for no acquaintance. I had not put off my mourning, and we cherished no wish for company. Of course, I had my son Rudolf with me. He was now eight years old and a wonderfully clever little fellow. We had hired a young Englishman who performed the duties partly of tutor, partly of nursery governess to the boy. In our long visits to the exhibition palace, as well as our numerous excursions into the neighborhood, we could not, of course, always take Rudy with us, and besides, the time was now also come for him to begin to learn. New, new, new to me was the whole of this world here open to us. All the men who had come together from the four corners of the earth, the richest and most distinguished from every quarter, these fight, this expenditure, this turmoil, I was literally deafened by it. But interesting and full of enjoyment as it was to me to receive into my mind these surprising and overpowering impressions, yet when alone I wished myself out of all this hubbub again, and in some remote peaceful spot where I could live in quiet retirement, along with Frederick and my child, nay, my children, for I was looking forward confidently to the joy of motherhood again. It is wonderful indeed, and I find it often noted in the red volumes, how in retirement the longing rises for events and exploits, for experiences and enjoyments, and again in the midst of the latter, for solitude and tranquillity. We kept ourselves apart from the great world. We had merely paid a visit to the house of our ambassador, Metternich, and let it be known there that on account of our domestic afflictions we did not desire any entrée into court circles or society. On the other hand, we sought to make the acquaintance of a few prominent political and literary personages, partly from self-interest and for our mental improvement, partly with a view to the service into which Frederick had entered. In spite of the slight hopes he had of any perceptible results from his efforts, he never allowed it to escape him, and he put himself into communication with numerous influential persons from whom he might gain assistance in his career, or at least information as to its position. 
We had at that time commenced a little book of our own. We called it The Protocol of Peace, into which all news, notices, articles, and so forth bearing on the subject were to be sedulously entered. The history also of the idea of peace, as far as we could gain a knowledge of it, was incorporated into the protocol, and along with this the expressions of various philosophers, poets, priests, and authors on the subject of peace and war. It had soon grown into an imposing little volume, and in course of time, for I have carried on this composition down to the present day, it has grown into several little volumes. If one were to compare it with the libraries, which are filled with works on strategical subjects, with the untold thousands of volumes containing histories of wars, studies on war, and glorification of war, with the textbooks of military science and military tactics and guides for the instruction of recruits and artillery, with the chronicles of battle and annals of état-major, soldiers' ballads and war songs, well then, I allow that the comparison with these one or two poor little volumes of peace literature might humiliate one on the assumption that one might measure the power and value, especially the future value, of a thing by its size. But if one reflects that a single grain of seed hides in itself the virtual power of causing the growth of an entire forest, which will displace whole masses of weeds through spread over acres of country, and further reflects that an idea is in the mental kingdom what a seed is in the vegetable, then one need not be anxious about the future of an idea, merely because the history of its development may be as yet contained in one little manuscript." I will here produce a few extracts taken from our Protocol of Peace for the year 1867. On the first page was placed a compressed historical survey. Quote, Four hundred years before Christ, Aristophanes wrote a comedy, Peace, into which a humanitarian tendency enters. The Greek philosophy, afterwards transplanted to Rome, admitted a striving after the unity of humanity from Socrates, who called himself a citizen of the world down to Terence, to whom nothing human was foreign, and Cicero, who represents the love of the human race as the highest grade of perfection. In the first century of our era appears Virgil, with his famous fourth eclogue, which prophecies universal peace to the world under the mythological image of the return of the Golden Age. In the Middle Ages, the popes often strove, though in vain, to interpose as arbitrators between states. In the 15th century, the idea occurred to a king of forming a League of Peace. This was Georges Podibrat of Bohemia, who wished to put an end to the wars of the emperor and the pope. For this purpose, he betook himself to King Louis XVI of France, who, however, did not fall in with the proposal. At the close of the 16th century, King Henry IV of France conceived the plan of a European confederation of states. After he had delivered his country from the horrors of the religious war, he wished to see toleration and peace assured for all future time. He wished to see the 16 states of which Europe then consisted, for Russia and Turkey were reckoned parts of Asia. Combined into a bunt, each of these sixteen states was to have the right of sending two members to a European council, and to this council, consisting thus of thirty-two members, the task was to be entrusted of maintaining the religious peace and avoiding all international conflicts, and then if every state would bind itself to submit to the decisions of the council, every element of European wars would be thereby removed. The king communicated this plan to his minister, Sully, who heartily accepted it and straightway commenced negotiations with the other states. Elizabeth of England, 
the Pope, Holland, and several others were actually won over. Only the House of Austria would have offered resistance, because territorial concessions might have been demanded from her, which she would not have granted. A campaign would have been necessary to overcome this resistance. France would have contributed the main army, and she would have renounced beforehand any extension of territory, the sole aim of the campaign and the sole condition of peace imposed on the House of Austria, would have been their entrance into the League of States. All the preparations were already completed, and Henry IV meant to take the command of the army in person, when on May 13, 1610, he fell under the dagger of an insane monk. None of his successors nor any other sovereign took up again this glorious plan for procuring happiness for the nations. Rulers and politicians remained true to the old war spirit, but the thinkers of all countries did not allow the idea of peace to fall to the ground again. In the year 1647, the sect of the Quakers was founded, and the condemnation of war was its fundamental principle. In the same year, William Penn published his work on the future peace of Europe, which he founded on the plan of Henry IV. In the early part of the 18th century appeared the famous book of the Abbé de Saint-Pierre, entitled La Paix Perpetuelle. At the same time, a landgrave of Hesse sketched out the same plan, and Leibniz wrote a favorable comment on it. Voltaire gave out the maxim, quote, Every European war is a civil war, unquote. Mirabeau, in the memorable session of August 25, 1790, spoke the following words, quote, The moment is perhaps not far off now when freedom, as the unfettered monarch of both worlds, will fulfill the wish of philosophers to free mankind from the sin of war and proclaim universal peace. Then will the happiness of the people be the only aim of the legislator, the only glory of the nations. Unquote. In the year 1795, one of the greatest thinkers of all time, Immanuel Kant, wrote his treatise on eternal peace. The English publicist Bentham joins with enthusiasm the ever-increasing number of the defenders of peace, Fourier, Saint-Simon, etc. Béranger sang The Holy Alliance of Peace, Lamartine, La Marseillaise de la Paix. In Geneva, Count Salon founded a peace club, in whose name he entered into a propagandist correspondence with all the rulers of Europe. From Massachusetts in America comes the learned blacksmith, Elihu Burritt, and scatters his olive leaves and sparks from an anvil about the world in millions of copies, and takes the chair in 1849 at an assembly of the English Friends of Peace. In the Congress of Paris, which wound up the Crimean War, the idea of peace gained a footing in diplomacy, inasmuch as a clause was added to the treaty which provided that the powers pledged themselves in future conflicts to submit themselves previously to mediation. This clause contains in itself a recognition of the principle of a court of arbitration, but it has not been acted upon. In the year 1863, the French government proposed to the powers to call a congress, before which was to be brought the consideration of proposals for a general disarmament and for the avoidance of future wars. End quote. But this proposal found no support whatever from the other governments. End of section 67, read by Sandra.